Our text this morning is verses 11 through 13 of 1 Thessalonians 3, and uh, a pastor's prayer. And uh, we stand at the beginning of this new year, and friends, there is really so much on my heart, but really I wanted to spend this time this morning reminding you of what I am praying for you. I don't know what the Lord has for us this coming year, but I do know that we're in his hands. And really, there is no better place for us to be. But you know that I am concerned for you all, for your spiritual well-being, also concerned for the future of the cause of Christ here in this place. I think it would be fair to say, as we look back over not only the last year, but really the last two years, the pandemic has exposed many issues and brought significant challenges to many churches, including our own But I'm convinced that we have to look to the Lord to be determined to seek him in prayer and to be faithful in the work that he has given us to do. And the Lord Jesus loves his church and he's the head of the church, head of this church. And the New Testament is clear that as believers we are to belong to his people, to be joined with brothers and sisters in the cause of Christ. And I would say that the value and the preciousness of the gathered church has been lost to many. But it's not been lost to the Master, to the Lord Jesus. Now, no church is perfect. We know that. We're all aware of our own shortcomings. But there are many blessings. And we said, didn't we, as we sung even in that first hymn, we are those who who love the Lord, we love his word, we love his people, and we're serious about proclaiming his name far and wide. But I would say that as we are serious about doing the Lord's work, his way, according to his truth, we need him. We need him. And that's why, once again, at the outset, we are setting aside in this coming week these focused times to seek the Lord together, to cry out to him, because we cannot do anything without him. And we're foolish if we think we can We need the work of the Holy Spirit, and as a people together, we need to cry out to the Lord. Now, Christ's cause is never in doubt, but local works, they can come and they can go, and we see that all the time, and they can go when they lose that dependency upon the Savior and that commitment to the truth of God. And so I want to challenge myself and I want to challenge us all if there's any complacency that just because the Lord has been pleased to sustain the work here for well over 200 years that it's a given that it's just going to go on. Each generation has to be committed to serving him and some, if you look back over history, have done it more wholeheartedly than others. The question is, if the Lord pleases, what is going to be said of us? What's going to be said of our time and our faithfulness in the challenges of the time in which the Lord has placed us now? And they're not easy days, in many respects unprecedented days. How will we, by God's grace, stand to that challenge? And I am praying that the Lord will stir us up in the midst of the battle. And I'm praying that by his grace, with our eyes fixed on him, that we will stand brightly and boldly for our Savior. And not only for his glory, but also for the spiritual good of those all around us who don't know him. And that should be such a burden upon our hearts that this town, our town of Penzance, 
is still so dark and the impact of the gospel still seems to be so minimal. We long for better days. And I'm praying for us together that well aware of the many challenges that are ahead as well as the real threat of the enemy, I'm praying that God will stir us up and that we wouldn't be asleep. But let's consider this morning what are some of the things that I'm praying for you. What am I praying for you as believers, particularly those who have been given to my care as pastor? Now let me just say, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer, I am praying so much that God will work in your life. I'm praying first and foremost that you will be brought to see your sin, that your relationship with God is broken, and that you will turn from your sin and you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That you will come to see that it's only through his death on the cross that sinners like you and like me can know what it is to be forgiven, for our sin to be dealt with, and for us to be made right with God. And I'm praying that if you don't know the Lord this morning, that by God's grace you'd be born again. That he would take hold of you, that he would make you new, that he would give you life, and you'd be brought to see that true Christianity is not about what we do, but it's about what God has done. And it's all there for you, in and through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. So if you're not a believer this morning, that's what I'm praying for you, that God would save you. God will break into your life. But for those of us who do know the Lord, those of us who are serving and walking together, what am I praying for you? Well, I found Paul's prayers to be of such help to know what to pray. And so we're looking at his example and what he was praying here. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's writing in this letter to the believers at Thessalonica to explain his heart and his attitude and his ministry towards the people there. And you have to understand that as Paul is writing this, as he's bringing this letter together, many, many attacks are being brought against Paul. He is being criticized and attacked from all manner of enemies. And the thing is, he's not there in person to defend himself. And so he's got to write, he's got to open his heart, and he's got to express his love and his concern for this fellowship at Thessalonica and the believers there. And he also has to explain the nature of his ministry that the Lord had given to him. And so in the letter, he begins by expressing his gladness and his delight in the genuine faith of these believers. And he speaks about how it brings great joy to his heart that they're growing in grace and faith and maturing. And Paul then goes on to defend the ministry that was given to him by the Lord Jesus, and he draws it all together by setting in words this prayer for them. And really, it's a, it's a prayer of a pastor. It's a pastor's heart. His heart is for them, and he prays these specific things. Spurgeon once wrote, he said, I take it that a minister is always praying. He's not always in the act of prayer, but he lives in the spirit of prayer. If you are a genuine minister of God, you will stand as a priest before the Lord, spiritually wearing the ephod and the breastplate, whereon you bear the names of your children, those given to your care, pleading for them within the veil. And that's what we see with Paul here. 
His prayerful burden for these believers is clear, and it's the heart of every true pastor, every true elder, every true under-shepherd. The focus of their role is to be in the Word and prayer. And so what should a pastor pray for? Well, verses 11 to 13 give us this really helpful model, this helpful example. And it's a model I often use when I'm praying for you. And this prayer, it comes in the midst of of great truths and gospel reasoning. And we must never think that when Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit, that these things aren't touching his heart. Sometimes when Paul is speaking about doctrinal things and deep things, some see it very much as an academic thing. You know, that's the doctrine, but we need the love. The reality is that these things move him. They grip his heart. And it's obvious that as he's writing and as he's expressing this prayer, not only does the truth move him, but also you see his deep love in his heart for the people. As one has said, he expresses his deep desires for his people's welfare and his highest desire for God's will. And the way that Paul puts this prayer down helps the Thessalonians to understand his heart for them. And you you find that throughout Paul's letters. You see that generally in his letters, including to these believers. So, for example, if you were to look at 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. In the second letter, 2 Thessalonians 3, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. And so his heart is for them. He's praying these things. And the purpose of our text this morning is to make it clear to the Thessalonians and also to us what his desire was for them. His pleas before the Lord as to what the Lord would do in them and in their midst. It's the prayer of one who has responsibility, who has people on his heart, and it does them good to know that. And so he tells them. And so what does he pray for and who does he pray to? Well, look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. That is who he is praying to. Now, sometimes we run over those words and we fail to see their importance. It's, in fact, a stunning statement. And it gives us a rich insight into some important truths concerning the Trinity. Notice in those verses and in that expression, Paul addresses both God the Father and Jesus. He calls God Father, he calls Jesus Lord. Now you say, well, why is that important? Well, often people have the understanding that that God is sovereign, but Jesus is more personal. But notice Paul switches them around here. He uses the more intimate personal title for the Father. He says, our God and Father... But then he speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing his sovereignty and authority. And so Paul brings out this lovely balance in the Trinity, one in three, three in one, though different persons, they possess the same attributes and fullness of deity. And Paul also uses the word I, which underlines that personal relationship that the believer is able to know with each person of the Godhead. 
And so the oneness in the Trinity is emphasized by Paul, and he happily cries out to the Father and the Son, affirming their deity and their sovereignty, his confidence in the way that they deal with men and women, and his confidence that they will hear. And so even in who he is addressing, we see that relationship that he has with the Lord. Now, what does he pray for? Well, he longs for their spiritual growth and their maturity in the Lord. And he does so in three areas. Faith, love, and hope. Those are the three things. These three vital Christian virtues are where he wants to see the people grow. Where each true under-shepherd wants to see the people in his care grow. So let's look at them together. He prays, and I am praying for you, for deepened and mature faith. Any true pastor and elder longs to see the faith of the people in his care deepen and mature and grow and be perfected. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Now, that direction, the word direct, means to make right, to make straight, to lay a path in which all obstacles are removed. And what we see when you read through the earlier parts of the letter, 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And so it's clear that Paul was finding it difficult to get back to Thessalonica. Circumstances were preventing it. And so he was praying that God would overrule. And only his intervention could overcome the opposition of the enemy. It's very interesting, you know. Paul goes to God to deal with Satan. The believer never has anything to say to the enemy. You go to God. And that's what Paul does. And Paul wants the Lord to make the way clear so he can get to Thessalonica. Why? 1 Thessalonians 3.10 Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. He wants to see them. He wants to be with them. He wants to see them face to face. You know, one of the, the realities of this pandemic is that it removed that from us for such a long time. But you can't replicate that, that being together, face to face. That's what Paul longs for. He wants to be with them. He wants to go and help them have a perfecting, growing faith. That's on his heart. Friends, if we're honest this morning, most of us still walk more by sight than by faith. We make judgments based wholly on circumstances and feelings and intuitions rather than the word of God and the clear principles of the word. We walk by sight and sense more than by faith, and so we need to grow in that area. And you say, well, that's fine, but what does it mean? Well, as one has said, faith is the ability to trust the truth. Faith is the ability to trust the truth. Now, to trust the truth, you've got to know the truth. And so to help people go on with the Lord, for their faith to deepen and mature, it's not some sort of mystical, vague idea. It's not believe harder, or you're not believing well enough. That's not what Paul is saying. For our faith to be deepened and matured, it means for our trust in the truth to grow. 
And so one of my responsibilities as an under-shepherd is to explain the Bible so that your understanding of the truth grows. And as you understand and as that is deepened by God's grace, your faith is enlarged in God with a wider, deeper, firmer foundation of the Word of God. And so Paul is not saying that he wants to come back and launch them into some new ecstatic experience where they can believe harder in the little that they know. He wants to come back in order to teach them more of the great truths about the Lord Jesus, about the gospel, so that their faith is enlarged in the greatness and the wonder of the truth and the God of the truth, its depth and its riches. And friends, that's why wherever the Lord has us, we should always be looking above everything else for churches where the word is preached and explained faithfully. You know, in some measure, the other stuff, that's there. The key thing is the preaching of the word, the centrality of the word. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm failing in what God has called me to do. Living by faith, taking God at his word means I need to be brought to know and understand the truth concerning him and his ways. And that happens as the word is explained, as it's applied, and as it is made real by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes this truth and applies it to our hearts and minds so that we know it to be true, we know it to be real. It impacts us. We experience it and we know it. The church is so weak today because it lacks so much in this area. People have decided that they'll prefer all manner of other things. They want to be entertained and have minimal commitments. And so you have believers and churches thrown around by all manner of teaching. By the challenges of the age. Why? Because the foundation has been set aside. And the word of God has been set aside. And that lack of truth, there are just many who are are in the shallows all the time. And there's a weakness because they've not been fed. Because faith cannot grow beyond the presence and understanding of the truth. How can you rest on what you don't know? How can you you rest on a foundation that isn't there? To call people to deeper faith without giving them the truth that allows that to flourish... Is foolish, and at worst, it's very damaging. In some regard, it can be quite cruel. You cannot trust what you do not know. And Paul says, I want to see your faith built up, but for that, your understanding needs to grow, and I so much want to be with you, to be back with you, to teach you about the great truths of God. You know, one of the things that as leaders here we are totally committed to is the expository preaching of the Word of God. To go through the Scriptures, to explain and apply, many don't see the value of systematically teaching and explaining the truth from the Word. There are many who just disregard that, but we believe it is vital. The whole counsel of God. Why? Not because it's a theological position per se, although it is a principle that we stand upon, but because we know, because the Scriptures tell us, it's the only way for your faith to be enlarged. By understanding more of the Lord, more of his way, that foundation which comes from the scriptures. Not to believe that the little you know harder, but to understand more that enlarges your faith in a great God. Friends, we're just dipping our toes. 
God is vast, glorious, so much more to know of him. As one explains, when the man said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, he wasn't saying, help me believe harder. He was saying, help me know what I don't know. Help me know more so I can believe and trust. I believe what I know, but I can't believe what I don't know, so please give me the rest. The mandate of the church, the pastor by the great shepherd himself, is to feed the flock to feed the word of God to people so you enlarge the foundation of their faith. Greater trust in the Lord, dependent upon greater understanding of who he is, and we find that in his word. And that combination of that confidence in the truth with the personal experience of God working through that truth sees faith grow. Faith laying hold of the truth of God and building its life upon it. That's the prayer of the pastor that the people in his care won't just stay in one place or begin to slide backwards, but that they would deepen and grow and mature and have a hunger for the word and have a, a longing and a desire for the word. Do you know there is a real lack of appetite for the word of God? And that's true generally. I want your faith to grow so that you are grounded in the truth. And I pray that God would overrule all my flaws and failings so that you would see beyond me to know and understand and hold on to the things you hear. And I want you to be thrilled with the word. I don't want you to be thrilled with my cleverness or catchy titles. I want the word to be that which thrills you so that you're excited at coming to the word of God. You know, there's so much that is thrown in that that kind of takes away from that. We want to be thrilled with this book because it's the word of God. And I long for you to be excited about that. And I want you to be equipped so that you can handle the word for yourself. So as we go through the scriptures together and that understanding grows, it helps you when you come to the word for yourself, be able to pick it apart and understand and see the way in which these things come together and the narrative of the scripture from beginning to end to give you the tools to be able to do that. So that you'd see from beginning to end, the Bible reveals the character of God is full of Jesus. And now it's only through him that we can know God and know life and what it means to live for him. You know, there's a lot of Christianity light, or as someone has said, sermonettes for Christianettes. The people only hear some self-help or psychoanalysis or motivational talk. The foundation of truth is never enlarged and their faith doesn't grow. And they remain in the shallows. Everyone who stands and bears responsibility in preaching the truth will give account for every word they speak. The Christian life is a life of faith as a result of who we know and what we know to be true. All the great truths, the precepts, the principles, the promises, they are the foundations upon which we build. So how do I know if my faith is growing? How do I know this morning as I start 2022 that my faith is growing? Well, some questions to ask yourself. Is my knowledge of the word of God increasing? Do I have a greater confidence in the Lord? Do I trust him? Am I trusting in God's rule and sovereignty, even though I might be going through difficult times at the moment, and am I content in that? 
Do I want to obey God more this year? Do I want to be more committed to his cause? When trials come, am I able to rejoice in the Lord and look to him even though life may be hard? And as we go on in these things and many others, we can know that our faith is growing. And when these things are evident, however small or faint they may be, the foundation is being enlarged. You are trusting the Lord, trusting his truth. You are growing. Now, often the question is, did God answer Paul's prayer? Well, we know that he did. And you say, well, how? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. God answered Paul's prayer. And Paul wouldn't actually get to Thessalonica for a further five years, but the Lord answered his prayer for them through the faithful teaching of others. I pray that your faith would deepen and mature. And then next one, and last two, will be much more concise. I pray that you would have an increasing love. Love for the Lord and love for each other. Verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. You see, when faith grows, when we know the Lord more, when we're walking closely with him, so our love grows. Paul knows that as spiritual birth is a work of God, so spiritual growth is also a work of God. And we are dependent upon him for it. And so Paul's petition is literally, may you have an increasing, overflowing kind of love. And the love that Paul mentions is agape love, the strongest, highest, purest, noblest love, the love that sacrifices to meet the needs of others. And he's already mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love. And so he knows that those things are there amongst them, but he wants them to increase. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And so Paul knows that they have faith, but it needs to grow. He knows that they have love, God has taught them, but that needs to increase. And where you have an increased foundation of truth, there is an enlarged faith, faith which lays hold of the Lord and the Saviour, and the more I know him, the more I trust him, the more I believe him, the closer I am drawn to God through Christ and keep the Lord in view and know him, the focus of faith, as that happens, as God works in my life, I am changed. And one of the results is that I begin to love God more. I begin to love and enjoy that fellowship with him. I begin to love the Lord Jesus more. And as my love for God grows, one outworking of that is that my love for others also grows. Particularly for my brothers and sisters. So that I love them, not just in saying that I love them, but I love them in my attitudes, in my heart for them, in the way that I am with them. And the Holy Spirit works so as my heart overflows with love for God, so my love for my brothers and sisters increases. Love is therefore an evidence of healthy faith. 
As one explains, as faith embraces the truth, as I know more about God my Savior, more about Jesus my Lord, as I trust him and love him more, my heart overflows with love to others. Growing in faith, I learn to trust God. I learn to love him more perfectly. My heart moves toward him. And as my love for him grows, my love for everybody else grows too. I experience its breadth and length and height and depth. And the very love of Christ that passes knowledge fills me with the fullness of God by which I love others. True love is an outworking of enlarged faith. And you say, well, well, how can I love believers the way I should? Well, our Lord said in John 13, we'll be known as his disciples if we love one another. But how can I love them with that fervent, sacrificial love? How can I love the lost, the ungodly, those who treat me wrongly? How can I love them? As faith is strengthened by knowing and believing the truth, we know more of who God is, and as we love him more, the more we love others, we cannot just turn love for others on or off. We must love because God loves, and we love the God who loves them. We love the church because God loves the church. Verse 12 emphasizes love for the brethren, a love for all men, a love for the believer, and an evangelistic love for the lost even those who oppose us. A love that has been modeled by God's grace to them. You see, Paul loved these believers evangelistically before they were saved. And he loved them in fellowship once they were saved. So ask the question, how do you know if your love is growing? Well, ask yourself these things. Am I more concerned for the comfort of those around me than my own comfort? Do I have time for the problems of others rather than being absorbed only in myself? Am I willing to give sacrificially when it costs me, when it is inconvenient? Am I willing to set aside my personal ambitions and agendas for the good of others? Do I actively pursue ways that I can show my love for my brothers and sisters? Do I have a concern for those outside of Christ which leads me to actually do something? You say, well, did God answer Paul's prayer? 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 again. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. God answered his prayer. But I'm praying for you, deepen faith, increase love, and then as we finish, purifying hope, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so when you're grounded in the truth, when your faith is growing and your loving is increasing, you have a firmer grasp of that great hope to come. And Paul's prayer moves to this great climax that their hearts may be established. Now, what does that mean for your heart to be established? It means to be made firm and stable and strong in the face of temptation. And Paul longs that their hearts be established like this because he knows that the heart is the seat of motive and purpose and desire and thought. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his heart. 
And the Lord wants his people to have a, a strong foundation of faith and love so that you have that strong, immovable, resolute heart that can stand against temptation. And that produces then hearts that are blameless in holiness, that purity of life. You say, well, how does that link in with love? Well, the heart that loves God fully and loves others will not crave the world or the things of the world. It won't be driven by pride and self and the lust of the flesh and selfishness. A heart in which love, the love of God, dominates is selfless. If you don't love others, as one says, and lose yourselves in loving God and others, you turn on yourself and you love yourself, and that turns you away from living holy. And so the final longing of Paul's heart in this prayer is for the holiness of the Lord's people. Living holy gives glory to God. We should want to be a holy people. To take sin seriously, to battle temptation, to turn away from what is unclean, to pursue what is pure and good. It's what the Lord desires for us. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy as I am holy. You say, well, how does that link in with your hope? Verse 13, Paul says, I want you to be pure before our God in the presence of our God, who is the judge. I want him to see you as pure. Now, the believer is complete in Christ. He's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So as we considered earlier this morning, the father considers the believer as righteous as Christ because they're in Christ. And so we are accepted Think of those great words. Bold shall I stand in that great day. That's true for the believer. But that's not to bring complacency in our lives day by day. We are to pursue holiness with the end in view, knowing that one day we're going to stand before the Lord. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If I really know that one day I will face God and be accountable when I'll be before the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is going to motivate me to live for him and live for his glory and live to please him. So purifying hope, I live with eternity in view. The problem is that many of us are living only with the present in view. We need to live with eternity in view. And so the pastor therefore prays that God in his great grace will give his people a hope that will purify them, that the people in his care will be mindful of eternity, that they would live with that great day in view, presented blameless in holiness with all the saints. And that's a view which takes us beyond the local church at Thessalonica, even the local church here at Clarence Street. It encompasses all the Lord's people on that day. And Paul's desire is for believers to be pure at the coming of the Lord Jesus in the future glory that should motivate us now. And so simply, you're on my heart. And I'm praying that as we enter this new year that our faith, all of us, that our faith would be deepened, that our love would be increased. And as we live with that certain hope that we would live holy knowing that one day we will see him and we will be made like him. It's the prayer that's ever on my lips for those in the fellowship here. And I pray that the Lord would be pleased to work mightily in us and in our midst for the glory of his name. Amen.